You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. I'm sorry, I'm not doing it the wrong way. This is Play by Play Cast, the world's number one sports media podcast. Wait, what? Nobody's fact checking it, just keep going. Here we go. Who the hell is Happy Gilmore? Got all that on camera, right, John? Sure, I did. All right, because the red light was not on. The podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster. Oh, you can stick me in some kind of Italian boat because that one is Gondola. Now, from New York. Really? All the big ones are from New York. Your host, Joe Godet. It's still Joel. Yeah, he will not be able to see very well, Cotton. This is episode number 182 of Play-By-Play Cast. It's the podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters, hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster, a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparations of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. My name is Joel Godet. I'm the radio and television voice of the Ball State University Cardinals, and you can reach me or you can reach the podcast on social media at PXPCast. I'm at Joel Godet, or shoot me an email, J-G-O-D-E-T-T at B-S-U dot E-D-U. Last week, Larry Kahn was our guest from Sports USA Radio. Alex Burchi from Big Ten Network was our guest on episode number 180. We've been doing this podcast for a very long time, coming up on what will be year five of Play-By-Play Cast once we roll through July so we have had a lot of guests. Well, this is episode 182. There have been a couple people on twice. We've had about 178 guests over the course of this podcast. I think today may be the biggest of them all. And I'm doing this like it's some sort of massive reveal. But if you're listening, you've clearly clicked on the title. So you know that today's guest is the voice of the NBA for the longest time. Marv Alberts from New York went to Syracuse for college from 1960 to 1963. He actually went to Syracuse before it was called Newhouse, but he did work at WAER, the ever-talked-about and very famous uh, student radio station at Syracuse that many of our previous guests uh, have worked at uh, that I had the pleasure of working at in college. Uh, From Syracuse, Marv wound up back in New York City where he became... Like his mentor, the voice of New York City sports. Marv filled in for Marty Glickman on a Knicks broadcast in 1963. It was his first exposure as an NBA voice. And then he took over as the voice of the Knicks in 1967, a role he held for 37 years to follow. Marv also called New York Rangers broadcasts and New York Giants broadcasts and did the 6 and the 11 o'clock news in New York as well, at least the sports on news in New York as well. If you grew up in New York City as a sports fan, you knew Marv Albert's voice. If you grew up a sports fan in America, you knew Marv Albert's voice as well because he became the voice of the NBA on NBC And on TNT, he was the voice. We just got finished watching The Last Dance for so much of Michael Jordan's run through the NBA to the championships. He called the flu game, or now the pizza game. He called the shrug. He called the switch from one hand to the other for the layup in midair. Marv also called the dream team in the Olympics, the NFL on CBS, the NCAA tournament on TNT. He called Monday Night Football on Westwood One, including the Super Bowl from 2003 to 2010. But Marv isn't just a sports figure because he was a frequent guest on David Letterman as well. 
Marv throughout his career has been a mainstream celebrity in addition to being a sports voice and a guy that I have wanted to have on this podcast for the longest time. And finally, was able to get a chance and sit down with Marv to tape episode number 182. We dive into Marty Glickman. We talk about, yes, Marv coming into his own as a broadcaster and what it was like finding who he was as he grew up in his role. His voicing, his phrases, stories of greatest games he's called and greatest athletes he's covered, stories from W8ER when he was in college as well. And yes, we do talk about where yes comes from and how sometimes the most simplistic catchphrases can be the best ones. Marv Albert is our guest on episode number 182 of PXPCast. And where do we start? Well, of course, where we have to start right now. The pandemic, COVID-19, the coronavirus, how you're passing time. Turns out a little bit of Amazon Prime. Marv Albert is our guest this week on PXPCast. I've heard a couple of interviews that you've done um, since the quarantine has started. And I have to tell you off the top, uh, I've not yet started it, but uh, you're you're like the third person that's recommended Bosch to me. So, oh, really? <laughs> it, it, excellent show. I, I think it went three, uh, six seasons. Uh, and these days you look for that type of show. Uh, Ozark, too, I put right in there. And there's another one called Fauda, F-A-U-D-A, okay. uh, which is very popular. On the Netflix, there's just so there are so many possible shows, and for one who really had no time to binge for uh, a good portion of his life, it, it, it really has changed a lot of things. It's been very, very good. And reading, and you know, working out, and watching all the uh, classic NBA games—that's been my my story. You're you're all of a sudden all caught up on pop culture. Yeah, well, I always followed it. You know, I, I I always have, but not to this extent in terms of uh, shows that are you know, that are being streamed. Where you know, this is all fairly new for uh, for the world. Uh, the popularity of uh, places like Netflix and Hulu and American <laughs> Amazon uh, Prime, Prime, Amazon Prime, yeah. and yeah, there are so many epics. There's so many. Anyway, I uh, I told a bunch of people yesterday that uh, I was talking to you today, and I, I said anything that I'm missing that is obvious that I need to ask Marv in an interview setting like this, and with 100 uh, percent rate of return, all of them just replied yes exclamation point. Uh, <laughs> that was that was the response uh, from all of them. And I, I know you've told the story of how the call yes came to be uh, in the past. But the, the part about it that I'm curious about from your standpoint is, you know, you throw that in with yes, yes, it counts or just the way you've utilized the word oh in your career. Um, what is it about the simplicity of just that in a call and why that works and maybe sometimes nowadays how especially being in a younger generation we try to overthink that side of things yes i would point that out <laughs> but uh it, it really just came came about by accident uh just a quick story is that when i play with my you know play with my friends in the uh in the schoolyard back in my high school days and uh, grade school days, uh, there was, there's always one 
kid who's going to do play-by-play, hitting around as the game is going on. It wasn't me, and it was uh, somebody who played all the time. And he would always do the, you know, do the call, and he would mimic. There was a referee in the NBA by the name of Sid Borgia who was very, very colorful, uh, kind of like Joey Crawford was in recent years, but even more so with his calls. And uh, one of the things he would say when a player would uh, get fouled and would hit the shot would be yes. And it counts to indicate to the scorer's table that the basket is good. It counts, and he will go to the line. So uh, I started to use that at one point early in my uh, career doing Knicks basketball on the radio. I remember it was a uh, Dick Barnett, who was a very good shooter with the Knicks in their championship seasons. Uh, he would take this fall-back baby jump shot. In other words, his legs were all tangled behind him and I just happened to say yes and it kind of caught on you know people would say it back to me if I you know over at Madison Square Garden even on the road it would start in uh so I I kind of shortened it but then I do use it with uh this sounds like a scientific experiment (laughs) I would use it as you know a, a situation where a player would be fouled yes and the basket a yes and it counts so it just it was really accidental, and it it just was you know turned out to be a uh, a term that that fit in uh, basketball. I would hear the players throwing it back at me, you know, in a practice session or you know in their warm ups before a game. They'd come over and say yes, you know. So uh, that's uh, that's basically the story. There's there's so many iconic phrases that you've used throughout the course of your career. Um, is a lot of it just? that's what happened like it just came out and it stuck and not something where you you put a ton of thought into how to stand out in that fashion it's just those are the things that worked over time yeah i would say much of it came naturally but when i first started out and i'm sure all young broadcasters when they first begin their career no matter what the sport you you're influenced by an announcer that you've been listening to over the years and I was greatly influenced by an announcer by the name of Marty Glickman who uh, was an outstanding athlete at at Syracuse University was an Olympic runner uh, and a football player at Syracuse and then uh, I would say long term long time New Yorkers would know because he was the voice of uh, developing to a great broadcaster in basketball. In fact, he probably is the one who set the terminology back in the 40s and uh, was the voice of the football giants on radio, was called races at Yonkers Raceway, did, did all sports. Uh, and I got to know him because I ended up working uh, for him uh, when he was at the CBS radio. I, I would write for him. And I would also fill in for him uh, on shows where he'd miss. He had so many conflicts, which really helped helped me because uh, I was the film announcer. But I I was greatly influenced by a lot of the terms that he used to the point where I was walking around the house sounding like Marty. My parents thought I was nuts because (laughs) he had these various inflections, you know, and I ended up because I was around him so frequently I would, you know, talk like him and even when I first started on the air 
Uh, I actually had to correct that because you have to be yourself. I mean, he had a, many good habits and many good phrases, but that's Marty Glickman. So I had to move away from that. But it so happened my play-by-play developed with various inflections, and some of those terms just happened to come. It just you know seemed to fit what was taking place on the court, be it the basketball or hockey I was doing, even in the NFL games I would do. I know uh, when you filled in for Marty uh, when you were 21 in 1963, uh, there was a quote that said you thought you had done a bad imitation of Marty that day. Um, how did you find yourself? Um, and, and how did you create that break from the person that you grew up kind of idolizing to become Marv Albert? I, well, I was I was aware of it, and uh, just by listening to uh, tapes, I, I was always big. Even you know, even to this day, I will spot check myself uh, by DVRing a game. And now you, you can get the uh, all the games on the NBA app. Sounds like a commercial, but you know the the NBA. Uh, app is is so effective. I mean, I'll even go home uh, or go back to the hotel after I've done a game and I'll check it out, you know, just kind of spot check. And that's the best thing that uh, I I feel a broadcaster can do. I know some guys, people don't like to listen to themselves uh, afterwards, but you pick up things such as using words over and over rather than finding substitutes, but uh, you pick up uh, things that you're unhappy about. I mean, I, maybe I look at it negatively, but I, you know, just try to look for uh, parts of the broadcast that can be corrected. Uh, you never do a perfect broadcast. I mean, there's always something to look for. But with uh, what you asked about, with uh, being influenced by someone else, you, you have to kind of get away from it. I think there are certain things that can carry through uh, some of the. Bright spots. I also like there was a, an announcer by the name of Les Kiter who worked in Philadelphia and then in New York. He also did the Knicks briefly. Did a lot of uh, big boxing, uh, big uh, fights on radio and TV. And he had some uh, also inflections and great phrases. And I was influenced by that also. But I, that all had to be erased. So you, you know, you eventually develop your own style. Uh, what was the biggest influence that Marty had on you early in your career? Well, more so the way he handled himself with people. I mean, he was just, in fact, he ended up, after his career was over, teaching at Fordham University and is uh, responsible for helping so many uh, young announcers who came out of Fordham and now are known announcers because of the uh, classes that that he taught, but he was just had, uh, he had time for everyone and he, uh, his work ethic was something I was influenced by and the way he would set up for broadcast in terms of, uh, the charts that he would make. And to this day, many of, uh, the basketball and football charts are exactly the way he had it. He didn't do any, he didn't do a hockey uh, so, but that's a different type of preparation. I, you know, for sports, completely different. But uh, I, I was greatly influenced by the way he would prepare for a, uh, a radio or TV uh, broadcast. This might be getting too nuanced, but what was the hallmark of a of a Marty Glickman chart that made it so impactful? 
Well, there's one difference between the two of us. I might have had more information or anecdotal type of uh, info that he he would keep it very basic. Uh, it's hard to explain, you know, in an audio interview, <laughs> but you'd almost have to see it. But it, it would be more basic than what my charts evolved into. And sometimes I would say to myself, I have too much information down. And the one thing you don't want to do, particularly on 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 television is talk, is talk too much. I mean, I had a, you have to pull it back. And out of all the info that I have, maybe I would get 10%, uh, you know, except for the basics, 10% would be a lot. So, you know, I, I usually go away with the fact that even though I put the time in and, uh, you know, would find some good human interest stories, etc., I would maybe, the best possible uh, broadcast would be where 90% did not get on. That would mean I'd be talking too much. Uh, in other words, you got to let it play. And there have to be some times where you lay out. And, of course, you're working with a, a color commentator. So I, I always thought, and, and Marty was good at this, uh, you know, setting people up. I think that's very important to have the uh, rapport. I, I kind of like to keep it a little loose. And I've been fortunate where... Usually, I have somebody with a good sense of humor, and I always find that that's uh, that's significant. I want to come back to a couple of things in there, um, but I want to ask you another question on Marty quickly as well. Uh, we've had a handful of his his uh, Fordham disciples on the podcast over the years, and the the one thing that I think sticks with me most, Chris Carino said that that Marty always used to say to consider the listener. Um, are there are there any like Marty isms, so to speak, or things in that regard that still resonate in your mind all these years later? Yeah, that's uh, that was a good phrase by Chris. Uh, I mean, consider the listener to me would would mean don't talk that much. I mean, he was very big on that with because he made the transition from uh, radio to TV. I mean, radio was was really extremely big term in terms of sports in Marty's day, uh, and then. Uh, he was able to, uh, you know, move on to uh, to television. But his he made his mark mostly in radio. But even in radio, he felt you, you know you have to you have to pause, you have to let it breathe, and uh, you don't have to keep you, you know you get people crazy after a while if you just keep uh, keep talking. And there are announcers who do that. You know, probably know who they are as you listen. Uh, but uh, it's it's okay. To, to uh, step away and and particularly again with uh, with television and just not you know completely all you know just keep it uh, as a, uh, a talkathon you can't you can't do that uh, and uh, one thing I know he was always he'd go crazy about uh, and I think it holds today that there are too many graphics and unnecessary graphics on uh, on TV because. Uh, it really comes down to a very uh, a simple explanation. The producer and the director are doing so many uh, aspects during during the broadcast, and usually there is a, a PA uh, who is doing the production assistant who is doing the graphics, and they it's almost like you feel that they're getting paid per graphic <laughs> and a lot of, a lot of it is very good but too much is not good and that does happen 
uh, on many telecasts. It's just, you know, you just can't refer to it all the time. It interferes with, you know, what you're watching. And uh, that's a pet peeve of mine, too. You really have to uh, make judgments on, on graphics. And he, he was very uh, big on that. This will probably open up a, a whole different door here, but I'm curious on that note. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was, I mean, you're going on six decades of doing this. Um, what is different from a TV standpoint from when you started to now? And how have you seen the industry evolve that way? Um, and how has it impacted the job that you have to do as the talent part of the broadcast? Well, first of all, the broadcast these days, television, look so much sharper because of HD. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, I remember when we first, when I was at um, uh, MSG doing Nixon Rangers, there was a, uh, an HD room where they were just basically uh, being able to, to show sponsors and to show some of the executives what HD looked like. And it was <laughs> fascinating, particularly in hockey and basketball. You know, it's like watching uh, when 3D came out. It's not, you know, it's not quite quite that. And, and, and they do have, uh, they have the capability of doing it with VR, but sometimes uh, the HD is, is sufficient. You know, basically you don't have to go that much further than that. So uh, that was the, you know, to me was amazing to see. And now, you know, it's on every every telecast. But what is different is something I, I see now as I watch, you know, all the uh, classic games, whatever the sport, the screen is clean. You know, you, you, you see the score pops up at the right time, maybe in basketball, how much time remains, but you don't have, again, we're getting, I get back to the graphic right. aspect. You, you see all the graphics, you know, and it's, it's too much because you have all these comparisons. You have these, you know, uh, uh, crazy because of the analytics, which is somewhat helpful to, you know, coaches and general managers, but it's not that you can just go by analytics. You know, you have to go further than that into the player's uh, heart and, uh, you know, how intelligent he plays the game, etc. cetera. Uh, but it's become a, a situation where uh, production people end up using so many more graphics. You, you just didn't see them on the screen in games uh, back even in the 90s and the 80s. Even watching The Last Dance, uh, you, you can see on the NBC games or some of the uh, TNT and the ESPN games, it's it's really minimal uh, in terms of how many graphics are being used. How have you had to adapt um, to handle... I guess that that much information uh, being thrust onto the screen, or is it one of those things where, like, listen, I'm 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 here to do my job, and we'll weave try to weave these two tapestries together. Well, sometimes if it fits, I try to re refer to it in passing because it's usually up for a very short period of time. Other times, there are graphics that are obvious; you don't even have to say anything about it. Mm. If it's uh, you know how many points the guy has, what he's shooting, uh, 
but there are some that you are kind of you might be talking about something else, but then you are kind of forced to you know change course and make reference uh, to the graphics so it doesn't look like there are two different telecasts going on <laughs> at, the, at at the same time. But uh, that that would basically be the only way you have to, you know just to pay attention. You got to look at both the screen and the court. Uh, in be it basketball, football, hockey, whatever. Uh, you, you mentioned analysts earlier, and uh, you've worked with so many of them. You've worked with so many interesting ones. What has helped you uh, elevate them, put them in the best position to succeed, uh, and, and draw the most out of the person that sits in the chair next to you? Well, you hope that you can elevate, but I think rapport is probably the key word and that's something that has developed sometimes it takes time other times it happens very quickly steve kerr who worked with we worked together for about eight years four and then uh for, for we did four years after he retired from basketball and then he left uh to go to the phoenix suns as general manager and then came back and then left for golden state where he struggled but somehow won three championships and went to five <laughs> five finals. Uh, but uh, Steve and I hit it off immediately. You know, the same with uh, Mike Fratello, the czar. Uh, it took Mike maybe about a year to get accustomed to it. He was just out of coaching. And uh, then he he, uh, he did most of those uh, NBC the finals games in the 90s uh, that we've been watching uh, regarding uh, – Michael Jordan, then he left to, uh, he had coached very successfully in Atlanta, then went to Cleveland, then to Memphis. I have all these guys leaving me, so there must be something <laughs> wrong somewhere. But um, he was he was a human punching bag, so it was always, uh, it was always fun doing games with uh, Mike. And the same with Reggie Miller and Chris Weber. And, you know, we have a, a lot of laughs on and off the air and, uh, uh, you know, everyone, I think, has gotten better and better as they've done the games, and they've both done so much TV recently because of the advent of NBA TV, so they have even other opportunities. But it, it's really it's a growth process between the two people, you know, and it, it doesn't always work, but uh, I've been fortunate with the uh, the people that, uh, you know, I've, I've worked with. What was uh, working with Bill Walton like? Yeah, that was, that was an adventure. It was kind of fun because you never know what Bill was going to say. And, you know, I always admired him as a, a player, and he didn't talk very much. He, he's very uh, – uh, he, he, he's eager to tell of his tale when he was a player. He did not talk much, but he had a, uh, he had a stuttering problem, which was corrected. And, and he uh, gives credit to Marty Glickman for helping uh, when Marty was a consultant to the announcers at NBC. He worked with, with Bill and uh, really helped him. But uh, uh, Bill would you know, be just off the wall with stuff that he'd say. And I, I kind of enjoyed that. You know, it, sometimes it uh, would come on unusual spots in the game and we'd ignore him, uh, <laughs> you know. But, uh, no, he was, he, and still is, a lot of fun to listen to. Well, that kind of, I, I imagine that has to make your job more interesting because it keeps you a little bit on your toes in a, in a different yeah, you have to be alert, let's say, uh, with uh, with with Bill. But, uh, you know, I, I love listening to uh, Bill and another Syracuse man, Dave Pash, uh, and they work very well together on, on 
college basketball. Um, when it comes to voice for you, uh, talk to me a little bit about how you have honed kind of your instrument over time and, and how much effort has gone into that um, and to, to the sound that you have and the way that you inflect and um, the thought that you put into that? Or was that one of those things that you kind of, that happens naturally over time? It, it did happen naturally. I mean, I when I first listened to myself on a tape recorder, I was not very pleased with it. And, and then, you know, you kind of hone it. Um, I was even a, at uh, Syracuse University, I, I was even a disc jockey on regular radio stations in the city after I'd worked on the school station, WAER. Uh, I was on WOLF, WNDR, which were rock and roll stations, and I, uh, it was uh, really a great time. It was a lot of fun uh, to do that because I was always, I was always a big fan of disc jockeys when I was growing up in New York City. So I, I enjoyed that. But I knew I wanted to do sports, and then when I got into uh, the sports area, uh, I, I think it was just a matter of developing a style and and the voice and i have to be careful with it i mean these days i carry there's a, a spray if i feel <laughs> i'm getting too hoarse and i do it's called mouth coat i don't have a stake in the company but it's for uh, young people interested in being broadcasters and they're concerned about their voice and if they start getting hoarse uh on the air uh, it should be used i do sip on on coffee during the game, usually a uh, an espresso from Starbucks, uh, which for some reason doesn't bother me. In fact, it it seems to help me. I know some people say it's the worst thing you can do, uh, <laughs> but I do that and you know sip on water just to keep you know keep it moist. But uh, that's basically it. You know, you just have to know uh, not to scream. I mean, I I can get up. Uh, high on a, on a uh, you know big highlight but you don't want to throw your voice out i mean that's that's the one thing you got to be careful is not to go crazy uh with your throat on the air so well the uh, the thing i was curious about in that regard too was uh you, you had told michael k once that you you listened back to it was the willis reed game and you said you listened back and you heard a young lad being overpowered by the crowd um yes w- w- mm-hmm. what did you mean by that and how did you break through that well, I think at the time my voice was uh, younger sounding, so it didn't have the power that you develop, you know, over the years. But I was completely overpowered because that was probably the loudest crowd I'd ever heard at Madison Square Garden. This was the 1970 Game Seven Knicks Lakers, in which uh, the Knicks won their their first ever championship and Willis Reed uh, was a question mark because of an injury. He had gotten a cortisone shot before the game. People didn't expect that he'd play. And uh, the the dramatic moment was when he, uh, underneath our broadcast location, walked on the court and the Lakers were stunned to see that he was going to play. And they just stopped and stared. It was Will Chamberlain and Jerry West and Elgin Baylor. The whole group just couldn't believe it. And then uh, Willis played, hit a couple of shots early, uh, was really more of an inspiration. And the Knicks went on, you know, to beat the Lakers, really led by uh, Walt Clyde Frazier, who had one of the great games in the history of NBA uh, finals. 
what's changed for you over the time, though? If you said hey, hey, when my voice sounded younger, um, is that just time? You just like, I mean, sometimes do you just get older and you and you create a yeah, different sound? That's it. Like, I yeah. think so. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing you can do about it. I uh, I, I didn't really uh, even. Uh, that youthful sound that I might have had in the early 70s to me uh, kind of changed for some reason. I, I don't know. I, I, I can't I can't explain that. Uh, I've never been asked that question, I, I, but that's that's a good question. It, it just kind of developed by doing so many games. And, uh, I mean, the style and the phrasings were there, but it just developed. I, I can't explain it. When you look at a broadcast overall, um, and you know we talked about this a little bit earlier with you know there's so many graphics on the screen, etc., and uh, analytics and all of that. Um, I've had people on this podcast that have said uh, you know stats make for a boring broadcast on television. Um, that television is too many too many stats. Right. Yeah. That that television is more of a storytelling medium. Um, what in your eyes is um, most important? when you sit down to do a game and broadcast a game and, and what do you most try to convey and want to convey over the two hours you're on the air? Well, the first, the first part of that is getting off to a, a, a decent start, you know, after the opening tip, uh, in the NBA, I mean, most of the players are recognizable. You don't have what you might have say in the, in the National Hockey League because of the helmets and the so many international players. And it, it, it's a tougher game to do and very, very tough on the voice uh, because you're always up high. You just never know when a goal is going to be scored. Basketball is different because there are so many baskets, so many points being scored. But uh, you don't want to get caught early. And there can be things you can get caught on because you're setting things up you're looking down which is always a mistake we all do it and then you you know you may miss something so that's 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 number one and then it's getting uh your color partner involved and just getting the comfort level that you're into the game and it's just another game although it might be a, a huge uh game of the playoffs or, or finals whatever uh, but you can't think of that, you know, and I, I always feel the other vital part for the broadcaster is the end of the game. If it's a very close game, you can be really as brief as possible in terms of the call. And usually a good color commentator kind of lays out, you know, let's, it, it's the excitement of, of the play by play, you know, following what's happening on the court. And uh, if there's too much talk, it kills it. That's what I was going to say. You have to let the crowd work for you, too. That's what I was going to say next. Which, which we you... may not have working for us <laughs> when we eventually come back. That is a, that is a different proposition. <laughs> um, yeah. That's what I was going to ask next was, was how you handle those the biggest moments in your career. Um, when you think back, I mean, the Jordan games or – I mean, back further, or if you're my generation, I mean, I think of, you know, the David Tyree helmet catch, um, how you handled those situations in terms of your mindset, knowing that something was about to happen and, and how you carry through executing a, an effective call. 
Well, Joe, you can't overthink it, you know, um, because the call, the big call in the big game can come at at any time. And I, I've always felt you have to just do your basic play-by-play, and then the call is what counts. That's what I mean. the The play is what counts, and then the call will follow. You know, whatever uh, takes place with with the Michael Jordan games. Boy, that that was. I mean. Yeah, we had to be so lucky to be part of that, you know, um, in terms of all the uh, all the highlights that uh, he was able to, you know, bring to to the fans and to us and to you know just in general the world what what took place. I mean, I, the biggest thrill for me was doing the 1992 Olympics with the Dream Team, even though the games were blowouts for the most part. Uh, I can remember when they. When that group first walked on the court, it was the Tournament of Americas. They they actually had a U.S. had to qualify for the Olympics, and it was in Portland. And just to see, you know, Jordan and Magic and Carl Malone and David Robinson and you know the whole uh, just that whole bunch walking on is the greatest uh, greatest group in team sports ever. Uh, I mean, I got the chills, you know, watching that. And I, I would get up even at in uh, at Chicago Stadium at the time before they played in the United Center, just to hear that music that they play when the Bulls would take the court. And Ray Clay, who was a public announcer, public address announcer, you know, just running down the lineup. And Steve Kerr said the same thing. He, you know, he'd get the chills with that. So. Um, you know, it's great if you can be inspired by that that kind of uh, element that's going on. That that certainly helps. You know, the broadcast because you you're ready. You're it's almost like you're playing, but obviously very far away from it. But um, it's uh, it, it, you can get inspired by certain things. Uh, what are the other moments that like uh, are the forefront of your mind? If you know, Dream Team or some of those Jordan games, like what? comes to mind of hey i was really happy i was a part of this in your career well as far as michael jordan is concerned what comes to mind was the it's it's now the food poisoning game (laughs) we knew it as the flu as as the flu game yeah because no one uh obviously the players knew and the coaching staff was told uh but ahmad rashad who was doing our sideline and was very close to michael uh on a personal level told us that he wasn't feeling well, so I was able to say that right at the start of the uh, telecast, and then we were told he had the flu. That was what until the other night when the last dance <laughs> revealed it was food poisoning. Uh, but just watching him do what he, he, he could see how uh, he's hunched over, and you know, you, you thought that he was going to have a. Uh, an embarrassing problem on the bench, uh, but somehow he was able to continue playing and then really poured it on at the end. And then every time there'd be a timeout, he'd be uh, helped back to the bench by his teammates. You know, Scotty Pippen was carrying him. That, and we're right out right there. You know, just to see that whole scene play out was uh, really inc- incredible. That's, that's one of the games I'll, I'll never forget. There was another... Uh, playoff game that uh, sticks out because it was 94 it was Houston Rockets and the New York Knicks and uh, it was game 5 of the series 
And uh, that was the O.J. Simpson chase, oh. where I was switching back and forth with Tom Brokaw, who was giving the uh, the details of what was what was going on. That's the oddest uh, telecast I've ever been uh, a part of. And then there were TV monitors by the press table, so you saw uh, all the reporters and then people in the lower uh, bowl of the garden who were, you know, just walking down to to follow the chase more than anything else, you know, checking out the monitors. That was uh, easily the most unusual telecast I'd, I'd ever done. I was saying, so, is it hard to keep focused on the thing at hand? No, I, I was I really I just had to keep focused more on the throws to and taken from Tom, uh, Tom Brokaw. I, I mean, otherwise I'm just – uh, following the game, even though we're not doing a play-by-play, but you never knew when it was going to come back. So uh, I had to uh, keep my eye on it. The, the other, uh, the, in a different sport, boxing at the Olympics in 88 in Seoul, Korea, uh, where you had so many crazy decisions being made by the by the judges. And I did the Roy Jones fight where he was, you know, no question robbed of the decision. Uh and uh, Ferdy Pacheco, the fight doctor, and I were doing the fight, and you know we were uh, very candid about that. Uh, in fact, we ended up getting death threats after that uh, because there were Korean, Korean officials who were who made the decision. Wow. So we all had security after that fight, uh, and there were so many uh, just weird decisions being made. It came out later that. The judges were being paid off, so uh, obviously we were not wrong in our observations, but uh, it was just um, something I'll never forget what took place uh, in Seoul. It doesn't make the death threats any easier, even though you're right on the money on that one. No, well, we we, we felt, uh, you know, didn't really, even though we had security and uh, you never like to see that, but uh, I, I, I didn't. We both didn't take it that seriously, actually. So, uh, and, and the Nick Championship uh, in 1970 was a big deal to me uh, because of the uh, the drama of it and the way uh, the Knicks captured the NBA at that time. I mean, the Lakers were extremely popular. You know, out in LA, they get all the celebrities, but here are the Knicks. With Barbara Streisand and Robert Redford and Woody Allen, you know, at, at courtside, Dustin Hoffman, it was it became a, a different, uh, uh, certainly a, a different fandom that was showing up. Aside from the you know the nineteen thousand five hundred, and they had a, a just such an intelligent team, probably playing the triangle at the time. Phil Jackson was on that team as as although he was injured that year, he was on the seventy three championship. Uh, team, but he it was Red Holzman who was the head coach, and that's who Phil was uh, guided by in terms of his coaching aspirations. So uh, it was a very smart team and a very uh, a team that just moved the ball around. You know, had the right kind of attitude. It was uh, similar to what the Boston Celtics did in their heyday, and what uh, the Lakers did, and then what Golden State, you know, has done recently. So they were they were fun to watch, fun team to do. I don't want to take uh, too much more of your time here, Marv, but I did want to ask you before I let you go, um, 
We are both of the WAER and Syracuse uh, pipeline, uh, f much different uh, eras. So I was curious uh, what you remember. A little remember. bit different. Yeah. <laughs> I was curious what you remember of WAER and what it was like um, back when you were a, a, a collegian at Syracuse and uh, kind of laid the groundwork for what it all has become. Well, when I, when I was there, uh, it wasn't as competitive as – it has been in recent years because there have been so many sportscasters and newscasters and production people and advertising people that have come out of that, uh, of, of Newhouse, you know, at Syracuse. Uh, I mean, it still had a degree of competition, but it was such a thrill for me to get the word, yes, we'll use you on the air, you know, <laughs> and I didn't care if it was news, sports, music, whatever. And um, that, was, you know, had a lot of importance to me because that was a major reason I went uh, to Syracuse. I had heard so much about the uh, the broadcast program. This was slightly before Newhouse, and then became a Newhouse. And what was also uh, so beneficial, I was able to. Uh, Syracuse had a number of radio stations where they actually hired young people from campus and uh, uh, the first job I had was at WONO which was an FM classical station if you can picture that I mean uh, and I would uh, open the studio and close the studio on the weekends uh, not that I'm a Mr. Techie but I, I did learn how to you know push the on and off button and uh, then I you know got as I mentioned uh, disc jockey jobs with rock and roll stations. So that was uh, really what led to uh, sports, which was my first love. And I ended up doing uh, the Syracuse Chiefs one year uh, with a guy named Carl Eilenberg, who was the PA announcer at all the basketball and football yeah. games. In the Dome. Um, yes. Uh, he was known then as Peter Scott. He had a very uh, popular political show on at night. But his, uh, he became he, he got back to Carl Allenberg as a public address announcer. Uh, but anyway, uh, that was a great opportunity doing the Chiefs. They were then a farm team of the uh, Washington Senators, so uh, that was a that was a kick for me. And we would recreate the road games, you know, with a crowd record and the crack of the bat, so they could save money and not send us on the road. But we did the home games at the old MacArthur Stadium and in Syracuse. And that was, uh, you know, a tremendous way for me to start. So those are my memories of starting out at, uh, at Syracuse. Did you overlap at all? I know it was close. Did you overlap at all with, um, Dave Bing and with one James Arthur Beheim? Yes. Dave Bing. I did. Yeah. He was in our fraternity, uh, as was Ernie Davis. That's so, wild. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and John Mackey. Yes. They're all uh, they're really good guys. I, I, of course, D D Dave I've seen on a number of occasions and uh, always got a kick out of the fact that, I mean, he was a terrific college player but turned himself into a great NBA player and a Hall of Famer and a very successful businessman. That's one heck of a fraternity. Yeah, I was... Uh, uh, from the athletic point of view, yeah, they did pretty well, yes. <laughs> um, Marva... I, I, I could go on with you forever, but I don't want to take too much of your time here. So I, I, I appreciate you uh, giving me a call and 
and sitting down and uh, talking a little bit of the craft and, and going down memory lane a little bit there. Joe, thanks. My, my pleasure. Always nice to talk broadcasting. I could have gone on for like another hour or two with Marv Albert, but um, we set a time on it and I wanted to be respectful of Marv's time as well. But we didn't talk about, you know, being a, the, the, the sports on news TV guy in New York City for Marv Albert as well, while calling games, I believe, too. And was curious to ask him so much more about, you know, just the technical sides of calling basketball and, and calling football. We, we barely even scratched the surface of, of football with Marv Albert there. But to hear the way that he prepares and the way that the industry has changed over time, I mean, this is a guy... So, no joke, like, I, I thought at the end of that interview, when Marv says he was in the same fraternity as, as some people, I was like, oh, okay, like, same fraternity, like, using that as a general word. Yeah, we were in the same fraternity. No, he meant actual same fraternity. Marv Albert was in the same fraternity at the same time, Sigma Alpha Mu, or, or Mu, Sigma Alpha Mu, I'm, I'm bad at Greek, as Dave Bing. And Ernie Davis, <laughs> Ernie Davis, the Elmira Express, Marv Albert, they were in a fraternity together. The eras that Marv transcends. This is a guy, when Marv Albert started broadcasting the NBA, it was like 20 years old as a league. Think about that for a second. And think about how many decades and how many big moments Marv Albert has been a part of to, to hear his perspective on how things have changed. Um, you know, we talked a lot about graphics there and I, and, and I think a lot of that part of the discussion, and this goes back to the idea of yes, and it counts sometimes simple is not just the easiest way, but the, the right way. And sometimes it's the hardest way. To be simple, to be short, to not overcomplicate things. I think sometimes as broadcasters, we get so tied up in so many different stats, nuggets, numbers, stories, cutesiness. And I'm as guilty as anybody with that sometimes. Over description. I love a good over description. Like, I will tell you that a guy is dribbling with his tattooed left arm while wearing a headband and two different color sneakers. And... And I love what that adds to a broadcast. Um, and I think it's necessary. But there are times where brevity is the soul of wit and simplicity is the magic button to painting a beautiful picture, the correct picture, and rising to the right moment. And if you take nothing else from this conversation... Um, I think that's one of the things that struck me most talking to Marv and when he got into the graphics side of things and, and how um, television and, and radio has changed over the course of his career. That was that was something that uh, that struck me and that hit, hit a chord with me as well. Uh, I would have loved to ask him more about the Dream Team, by the way, but we uh, we again short on time. I didn't even get into Letterman so much. Uh, but but so grateful that Marv Albert uh, spent some time with us here. We've had some great episodes, uh, but this one was uh, this one was a treat. Uh, and by the way, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch Bosch at some point. I've I've done a lot of prime watching. I've gotten through uh, Hunters 
uh, Upload. Uh, Upload's good, by the way, if you're into like comedy, sci-fi. Um, Upload. What did I? What did I just finish? Also, oh, The Boys. Very, very big fan of The Boys. That's a superhero one. Uh, lots on Amazon Prime, but Bosch. I'm gonna have to put in my, in my, uh, my lineup now, on Marv Albert's recommendation. This is PXP Cast, episode 183. Next week, I don't know how we'll follow this up. For Marv Albert, my name is Joel Gadet. The music is from Marshmallow, and we are out. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.